Hear the word of the Lord from John chapter 5, verse 15 through 29. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For all the father raised... For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has forgiven all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Justin and I'm the lead pastor here at the church. If you weren't here at the pastoral welcome, my voice does not normally sound like this. I don't know what is going on. I get back from vacation and this is what I've got to deal with. And I wasn't screaming at my kids, I promise. <clears throat> Had no correlation with that. Um, I have no idea. I just woke up and my voice is almost entirely gone. And so I know it's not enjoyable to listen to a guy like that. I apologize. But it's not enjoyable up here knowing that at any moment I might sound like a 13-year-old boy, okay? <laughs> so <clears throat> pray for me. Well, it is good to be back with you this morning. Uh, my family and I got to spend a week at my parents' vacation home in Florida last week, and it was awesome for us. It was hot as the devil's britches, but it was enjoyable. Uh, it was restful and refreshing. If you are new here, um, after 12 years as a church, we have bought our first building. Last year, God called us as a church to put down some permanent roots here in the Quad Cities to pursue a building that could act as a strategic base for reaching the Quad Cities for Christ and where all of our families could worship God under one roof. If you don't know it, our church worships God under several roofs. We have two services here. We also have our kids down in, in two different cottages down there. Our youth meet on a different uh, area, the gymnasium on this campus. So we're spread all over the place. And it's, we, we want to worship God together under one roof. Well, through God's good hand of providence, we bought the Bettendorf First Assembly of God building before it ever came on the market, and we've been remodeling it for the past four months. I mean, it feels like it's been a year and a half, but it's only been four months, all right? Um, the work that's been done over there in those short four months is pretty astounding, and I cannot wait for us all to see it and to worship God together in that building. I am just... Like, do we need carpet? Do we really need carpet? Can't we just go over there now? Like, that's where I'm at. That's the point I'm at right now. Uh, while I was in, in Florida, my study was completed this past week, and my library was moved over there. And I just have to say, my study is so cool, okay? It's way cooler than me. I was sitting on the beach, and my wife was like, you ready to go home? I'm like, yep. She's like, why? I'm like, can't wait to get my study. I... I was over there this morning. It's, been, it's enjoyable. So I can't wait to get over there. Uh, and man, well, there's just so much that's going on right now. There's been so many times over the past few months where I've just been overwhelmed with gratitude for what God has given us. I think 
We didn't know it at the time, but I think it's exactly what we needed for this next season of ministry. There's so much room to grow. There's so much stuff that we've got that we don't have access to here that it's just a huge blessing. I don't know how many times while I've been working over there the past four months, what I've just said, I've just started like giggling, you know? And they're like, what are you? I just can't believe this is our building. I just can't believe this is our building. I'm, I'm pretty excited. Well, deep gratitude to God is one of the things that has kept me going because this has been an exhausting season where I've been effectively working multiple jobs as pastor, contractor, and tradesman, working 60 plus hours a week. And up until this past week, I hadn't had a day off in months. It's been a nose to the grindstone kind of season, but I think we're going to be so blessed by the end result. Now, many of you have asked me, how can I help? Well, here's our biggest need at the moment. We currently have five children's classrooms on a Sunday morning. We have about 125 to 150 kids each week. Now, the only way that we can serve that many kids with our current space is to have two services. When we move into the new building, several things are changing. First, we are going to one service. Praise God. It's going to be at 9.30 a.m. Many have asked me that. It's going to be at 9.30. We're splitting the difference, all right? We're going to make everybody mad instead of just one or two of you, okay? <laughs> 9.30. Everybody's changing, okay? Second, more folks are probably going to come and check us out. That means more kids. <clears throat> Third, in order to serve the kids that we have and the new kids that God is bringing us, in order to serve them well, serve them like Jesus serves us, we are adding four additional classrooms. The classrooms are pretty much going to be like, you know, one-year-olds, two-year-olds, and, and like that, all the way up. Or, yeah. Well, here's where we need your help. In order to serve that many kids in that many classrooms, we need to add at least 28 more volunteers in our kids' ministry. Listen, God has blessed us with a lot of children. Scripture tells us very clearly, children are a blessing from the Lord. We believe that. We want to we encourage our people to have a lot of children, and we want to um, serve the children that we have. We want to serve them really well. Now, we believe our kids aren't just the future of our church, that our children right now are a very important part of our church right now. And we want to make sure that when they come to church on Sunday morning, someone knows their name, someone takes time with them and shares the gospel with them and that they know through the words of their workers, their adult teachers and the lessons that they are deeply loved by God. And listen, before I came to Christ, I thought kids were just a nuisance. All right? I'm like, oh, I used to call them crumb snatchers. That's what I used to call them. All oh, these little crumb snatchers running around all the place, right? I, I had no, like, I, even when, even my, like, siblings, you know, my little si sister was born, my little brother was born, I'm just like, nah, I'm not into them, you know? And then God, when God changed my heart, God changed my heart towards children as well. Now, our society as a whole doesn't value children very much, and it just shows how stupid and selfish we ultimately are. Every successful society in history has valued children. And if you read through the scriptures, Jesus valued children. When his disciples had an attitude like me, all the kids were rushing to him. And he's like, no, 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 don't bother him, kids. Jesus rebuked his disciples and said, do not hinder them. Let the little children come to me, for to such belong the kingdom of God. Jesus says that kids actually have a thing or two to teach us about God and about the kingdom of God. He tells us, truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And then Jesus takes in his arms the children and he blesses them and he lays his hands on them. That Jesus shows us that children are important to God and children are important to the kingdom of God and children are important to adults if we're going to learn how to respond to God in appropriate ways and enter the kingdom in appropriate ways. Now, I just was thinking about this this week because where we're going in this passage today is like next level, blow your mind type stuff, okay? Can you imagine the humility it took for Jesus, second member of the Trinity, son of the living God, to leave heaven, the perfection that he enjoyed in heaven, and come and minister among human beings? 
It's hard to get our mind around that level of humility. We are, humility. We are such a mess. And Jesus willingly chose to come and live among us to show us what God is like, to teach us who he is, and to save us from our sins. And Paul says, when we look at that, what Jesus did for us, Christians are to have the same mind among us. In other words, we are to humble ourselves. We are to serve the least of these just like Jesus has served us. And that means serving children because children are the epitome of the ones who can really give you nothing in return, right? Serving in our kids' ministry is as much about you and your sanctification and your growth in grace as it is about our children. Yes, we want to serve them well, but, there's, but where else do you get to serve people in our church who have nothing to give you in return? Is it hard? Yes. Does it require patience and kindness and the development of the fruit of the Spirit? Absolutely. Right now, it's... Listen, part of me, I don't even know if I need to build this all up. Why? Because we, right now, we're serving two services, okay? And I'm a, I'm a long-winded preacher, okay? And everybody knows it who's been in the kids' ministry. Many of you guys are here. I hear all the time, you really preach that long? It just seems like it goes by so fast. Go serve kids. Go serve kids. Because about 40 minutes in you're realizing, what is he doing? It can't be that good. It can't be that good, right? But we're going to one service. And here's the reality. If we get these volunteers in and you, and you volunteer, then you, will, you basically are gonna serve one service every six weeks. One service every six weeks, okay? It's only a few times a year. So if you wanna get involved, if you want to serve, now, the question, God's called you to serve. And if you're not serving in any other aspect that, that, that you know, takes you away from that, we want you to serve in our kids' ministry, okay? It's one of the biggest needs we have right now in our ministry. You can meet Alicia Miller, our deaconess of kids' ministry over there. She can tell you how to get plugged in or you can send an email to alicia at sacredcitychurch.com and she can teach you how to get plugged in. Again, 28, here's, here's the deal, 28 more volunteers before we get them, we're not moving in. I'm just, there we go, I'm just gonna say that. <laughs> Uh, I'm just going to say that. All right, so that's what's happening. No, I'm just joking. All right, let me pray for us and we can dig into our study in the gospel of John this morning. Father, you are the God of all grace. You are unlike any other so-called God. You are so kind to us, Father, that you give us everything we need for life and godliness. You give us the air we breathe. You give us the sunlight that warms our faith. face, Lord God. And you give us the spiritual life that we need to walk with you. And I, I just pray this morning um, you would help my, my voice, help it hold out for two services, Lord. Uh, but even more importantly than that, that you would think through my mind, that my mind would be controlled by the Holy Spirit and by the Word of God, that you would enable me to speak your words because your words produce life. Your, wor your, words, your words kill and bring back to life. You, your words have all that power, and we want you to do that this morning. God, I pray it would be all of you and none of me. Would you anoint the ears of the people that you want to speak to this morning and help us hear. You promised us that your sheep would hear your voice. And so I pray that they'd hear your voice and not just my voice this morning. God, we want to pray for Isla Galliard. We want to pray that you would continue to strengthen her. We pray that you would drive all that cancer from her body, that you would strengthen all her, her, her whole body and soul from the top of her head to the, to the soles of her feet. Lord God, that you would strengthen her. And we also pray for endurance and faith for her, her, her family, Lord. We pray this all in Jesus' powerful name. <clears throat> amen and amen. Well, do you remember in school when your teacher told you that you needed to put your thinking cap on? Well, it's kind of a strange term, but it means that you are about to learn something that is gonna take your full capacity. It's going to take all of your focus. It's going to take everything that you've got and you're going to have to, you know, put the thinking cap on and do some heavy lifting this morning. Well, here's the issue. Today, in our text, we are going to have to put our thinking caps on. This passage of scripture might be the deepest well in the whole Bible, all right? Now, many times when you're reading it, you're just skimming through it, looking for the next 
encounter with Jesus. We've had the woman at the well. We've had Jesus turning water into wine. There's been some really cool uh, narratives. And, and we really, most of us are drawn to those. We really engage with those. We like those. And then all of a, now all of a sudden we get some really deep theology in this section. And it's going to take some effort on our part. This text of scripture actually has massive theological, philosophical, and moral implications. And what we're going to learn today, that it, this text and the teaching that we're going to read today, it actually has eternal consequences. And by that, I mean where you're going to spend heaven or where you're going to spend hell forever. And I know we don't talk about that very often in our society today, but they are real places and they are real ends for mankind. And we need to teach on them. We need to learn about them. We need to discover them. And so I really can't oversell how important these next few verses that we're going to read are. You could spend seven lifetimes studying them, and you would literally only scratch the surface. Today, God is going to teach us some things that we could never know without him revealing them to us. He's going to open up the mystery of the Trinity or the mystery of the Godhead, and he's going to let us take a little glimpse inside. And Jesus did this specifically to teach us who he was, who the Father was, how they related together, how they worked together. And what we will come to see is that Jesus was ultimately crucified and killed for saying the things that he says today. Okay? Jesus wasn't the type of preacher that most people like in our society today. Most people like the type of preacher who hymns and haws around, who tells funny stories about his kids all the time, who makes us feel a certain happy, clappy way, and we walk out going, well, wasn't that insightful? And we say, well, what did he actually say? I don't know, but it was funny, right? He gave us the middle way between everything. He wasn't too judgmental. He wasn't too loud. He wasn't too, he was just nice down, you know, right down the middle of the road type of guy. I just felt good. That's not the way Jesus encountered people. Jesus said things that you either loved him or you hated him. So here's the reality. If you understand Jesus' teaching today, you will either come to love him and you will fall at his feet and you will call him Lord and King or you're going to hate him. You will be like the crowds at his trial that cried out, crucify him, crucify him. See, Jesus' claims today leave no room in the middle for those who just want to keep, I just want to be chill. I just don't want to choose a side. I just want to get along with everybody. I want to put the sign in my yard that makes it look like I'm okay with everybody in the world and I got no problem with nobody. If you do, you're an immoral person. I'm just going to say that right away. You should have a problem. There should be some things that you say, that's wrong, that's sinful. That will send you to hell. And Jesus is going to show us that today. We, won't, we cannot keep Jesus in some kind of nice and comfortable category where we can esteem him as something, a good teacher, a nice moral man without worshiping him alone. No, he doesn't leave that open for us. Now, let's get to our text. If you remember, we're in... John chapter 5, and Jesus has just healed a man who had been an invalid his entire life. And Jesus does this good and miraculous work on the Sabbath, and this work enraged the Jewish leaders. Look at verse 14. It's one verse before we have it on the screen, I know. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. So this guy, Jesus healed, and this guy goes to the temple, and Jesus finds him. And he says, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, this is just something you don't want Jesus to say to you, right? Jesus heals the guy and he shows up and he sees Jesus and Jesus is like, I told you you're healed, now you're healed. Now he's like, quit sinning or something worse is going to happen to you. Can you imagine just the abrupt, whoa, 
What can be worse than being an invalid for 38 years? Well, here's where we're going. Hell is worse than being an invalid. Hell is worse than sickness in your body. Hell is worth, worse than these things. Being under the judgment of God is worse. And this guy, this guy who gets healed is a complete ignoramus, okay? Because all of the Jewish leaders are, are trying to find out who healed you. And at first he's like, I actually don't know. It's like, you didn't ask the guy his name, right? You just accepted this from the side, on the side of the road by some guy and you didn't get his name? Yeah, I didn't. He was just here. But now he meets him in the temple. He finds out it's Jesus. And look what this ignoramus does. Verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. This is a betrayal. This is throwing Jesus under the bus. Oh, you're really mad at somebody? You want to know who it is? Oh, it's that guy right there, the one who healed me. It's Jesus. Verse 16. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Okay, so now we see that the Jews, and it's really the Jewish leaders, they are purposefully set against Jesus. They have now categorized Jesus as an enemy of the Jewish state, as an enemy of the Jewish religion. So now, you, once you categorize somebody, you know they can never do anything good in your eyes, right? Or if you categorize somebody a saint, they can never do anything bad in your eyes. Well, now the Jewish leaders have decided this guy is wicked, this guy is a false teacher, this guy is a blasphemer, and this guy needs to die. Now, what has caused them to do that? Verse 16, second part. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Doing what things? Healing people. Bringing wholeness to people's bodies. That these guys were more obsessed with their man-made rules than they were with people receiving what they needed from God. Right? They had a really narrow view of God. They thought God obeyed their rules rather than them needing to submit to his rules. Look at verse 17. Jesus. Here's, what, here's the pressure. I occasionally say things people don't, people don't like. Okay, Here's the pressure. You get pushback and you want. When, when somebody doesn't like something you said or somebody misconstrues something you said or they were confused by something you said, typically what you want to do next is you want to soften the blow. You want to backpedal a little bit. You want to say, well, what I meant was, or well, I'm sorry that you took it that way, or I didn't mean to offend, or I... So you want to see, G or you think Jesus is going to go, okay, here's, guys, here's what I'm doing on the Sabbath, okay? You don't really understand, but God is working all the time. He's holding things together all the time. He rests, but he only rests from certain types of work. He's holding things together. And so on the Sabbath, it's actually good for me. I'm the son of God. It's actually good for me to bring healing and wholeness to people's body. That's actually a good thing. You want him to explain and walk people back from being offended by him. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus goes, oh, did that offend you? Try this. Did that wake you up? All right. Guess what? I like where my voice is headed. Let's go. <laughs> Getting warmed up. This is what he says. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. Oh, you don't like that I heal on the Sabbath? Well, God is my dad. That's what he says. Boom. Punches him right in the mouth. And ultimately, this is the statement that's going to get him killed. Verse 18. Here is the claim. Or you see it in verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. And every time you see that Jews, it's not all the Jewish people. It literally, it's a short ter shorthand term for the Jewish leaders, Okay. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. And look at this last statement right here. Making himself equal with God. There's the claim. And it's hard for me to overstate how colossal of a claim this is. Jesus, a man who had a human mother, was born from the womb of a woman, is claiming not just to be a son of God in the old Greek sense, like he was a demigod, he was some kind of lesser God. No, he's claiming to be equal with God. 
Now, God is eternal. God is all-knowing. God is omnipresent everywhere, all at the same time. God is a spirit. And here, this flesh and blood man isn't claiming, like most religious teachers, to merely know God. In other words, he's not claiming to be a prophet that points the way to God. Like Muhammad and, and Buddha and all these other world religions... Their their leaders all point to God and say, oh yeah, I know him and this is how you find him. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus made a universal and unique claim and said, I am equal with God. You want to know God? Look at me. When God is working, I'm working. I don't do anything that isn't God approved. Why? Because I am in essence God himself. He is equal with God. With God. Now, let me just succinctly as I can describe for you what we call the doctrine of the Trinity. Trinity, tri unity, three in one. The Bible clearly teaches that God is one. But in the one Godhead, there are three persons Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons of one substance, power, essence, and eternity. That is the doctrine of the Trinity as succinctly as I can put it. Three in one. We do not believe in three different gods. That's polytheism. We do not believe that, Jesus, that, God, that God shows up in, in three different modalities or that Jesus is somehow lesser than the Father or the Spirit's lesser than, than, than Jesus or lesser than God himself. We don't believe that. We believe that Jesus is divine. He is God. And, and there's lots of cults out there that don't believe that. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, they don't believe that Jesus is actually God. Well, in these next few verses we see that Jesus is going to kind of peel back the curtain for us and let us take a peek into, this is a big term, sorry guys, what theologians call the economic trinity. An economic in the terms of how they function together, the work that they carry out together. Not their ontological reality, their essence, but how they work themselves out. We're going to see it. I know that was a big word. I apologize. You can Google it later if you need to, right? I don't do it to show off. I do it because this is a key theological uh, category that we need to understand. So we're about, here's, here, so in layman's terms, we're going off the high dive and we're in the deep end. Are we ready? Can we do this together? Okay, thinking caps, on, all right? Here we go. Verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. Okay, just like Scott said last week, like father, like son. Jesus in his divinity, that's in his Godhood, in his essence, did not have his own will. His will and the Father's will are one. What God the Father wants and wills, God the Son wants and wills, and God the Spirit wants and wills as well. What God the Father does, God the Son does. Jesus executes on earth what the Father wills in heaven. Now, as a man, in his human nature, Jesus did have his own will. Now again, theologians call this the hypostatic union. Jesus is God and Jesus is man and those things have come together in one person. And so in his Godness. Jesus' will is equal to the will of the Father, but in his manness, Jesus has his own will. We know this because in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he was, or right after he was, betray- right before he was betrayed and he was about to be led off to be beaten and crucified, 
when all of that laid right before him, and Jesus, he was praying, and it said that his sweat, his sweat became great drops of blood. Literally, the capillaries in his face burst under that weight of anxiety and stress because the first time in his existence, he was going to be separated from the Father in some way after the crucifixion in his own death. And as Jesus is about to drink that cup of suffering... He's about to take on our weight of sin and take the punishment that we deserve on the cross. Jesus prays to God, his father, and says, if there's any other way possible, let this cup of suffering pass from me. So he's expressing his man, the will of man. He's expressing what he wants. I don't want to be separated. I don't want to go through this death. I don't want to go through this. But he ends that prayer with, not my will, but your will be done. So Jesus had a will of his own. He did not just like skip through the crucifixion. Yay! Looking forward to this Friday, right? No, he looked at that Friday in his flesh, just like we would look at that Friday in our flesh. That's a painful Friday. That's not a Friday you look forward to. But as the son of God, he also, in his divine will, his divine will was equal to the father. He, he wanted to obey the father. He wanted to die for us. He wanted to pay the price. He wanted to put death in his grave. He wanted to rise victorious over death, hell, and the grave. Jesus wanted to do that in, his, in the will of God. So what did he do when his human will set opposed to the father's will? He prayed, not my will, but your will be done. Now, that's the prayer that all children of God must pray to the Father. That's actually, in essence, the prayer that makes you a child of God. Where we say to God, not my way, not my will, but your will. Have you prayed that prayer? Or are you still trying to get God to follow your plans, to put his stamp of approval on the script that you've written for your life. Jesus goes on, verse 20. <clears throat> for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. The Father loves the Son. Now this is a huge philosophical point here. The Bible later says that God is love. That means God's essence is love. That means what love is, is completely derived from God. Now, why, why is it in this world, right, of Darwinian, of Darwinian evolution, this world, world of natural selection, then why is it that none of our songs, none of our great artistry has anything to do with Darwin, Right? Nobody's talking about evolution when they're singing and writing poetry. What are they talking about? They're talking about love. Love is literally what makes the world go around. There have been more songs, more poetry, more books written about love than anything else in human civilization. Why? Why is love such a big deal. Evolution can't explain it. And Christianity says, because God is love. And God, who is love, created everything that there is. And that means everything that there is revolves around love. Now this, many people would say, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think love is the reason we all exist. Love is the meaning of life. Love is, the, well, there's no other philosophy on planet earth other than Christian, Christianity that can give you a reason why love is at the center of all things. Let me see if I can do it here quickly. There's another reason why the doctrine of the Trinity is so important. If God is one and he's alone, he's not a Trinity, how could he be love? In other words, if God existed before there was anything, before he had created anything, there would be nothing for him to love. How could he be love if there's nothing to love? He couldn't be. But if God exists in his person, his essence, he's one in three persons, 
then before he created anything, he could still be love. The father loves the son. The son loves the father. The spirit is the love that exists between the father and the son. So in Christian doctrine and Christian theology, God himself in his nature and essence is a loving community. That's why love literally makes the world go round. That's why we crave community. We crave love because God is at the center of it all. And that's what the Trinity is. This is why we were made for love and we were made for community. Now I'm gonna tell you, no other religion in the world teaches this. I met with a, uh, uh, oh my goodness, a Muslim scholar a few, few months ago. My son had to do a paper for in, in school. And so we went to the mosque and we, sit down, we sat down with the imam and we let, saw them do their prayers. And then we started asking them the, theological questions. And at first I was sitting back and I was letting the students ask the questions. And then he made a statement that he said, Allah is love. And I said, and I was sitting there and it had already been an hour and a half and I was getting real hungry and I didn't want to do this, but I just said like, how could Allah be love if Allah is one? And could, because he, they believe basically that, that God is so transcendent, he can't, he can't love anything. He can't be connected to anything because that would lessen his glory in a sense. And he stuttered and he stammered around and he had no philosophical or theological basis for his claim that God is love. In fact, that claim has been taken from Christianity because Islam came about 700 years after Christ. No other religion in the world has a philosophical basis for saying that love is anything other than just some neurons firing in your brain. Christianity does. Verse 21. Oh, I'm sorry, keep reading verse 20. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father, verse 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Man, here is another colossal claim. God the Father is the only one who has the power to give life. He can raise the dead. Where does life come from? Again, evolution can't explain this. Where did the spark come from that gave birth to galaxies and created the spirit of man? Who turned us on? Who gave us a soul? Where did personality come from? What is life? People debate these issues all over the place. And Jesus says, all of that comes from God. And God has given that same power to me. And I can turn anybody on whom I want to. Now, Jesus here is speaking in two ways. First, Actually, he could be speaking in three ways because when Jesus was resurrected, or I'm sorry, when Jesus was crucified, people, scripture teaches us people came out of their tombs. People were raised to new life. He could be referring to that. But he's also definitely referring to the last judgment, the last resurrection of the dead, what happens to us after we die. And he's going to expand on that later in these verses. The, the next way, the third way he's speaking is he's, he's saying, when he says, power, the power, I have this power from God to raise the dead, he's speaking about raising the spiritual dead. Now, who are the spiritually dead? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and you, speaking to Christians, speaking to believers, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. What he's referring to there is the doctrine of original sin, that every single human being since Adam and Eve have been born into this world spiritually dead. That means you're cut off from your life source. You're cut off from God. You are estranged from God. You are an enemy to God. We are sinful. We're cut off from a holy God because of our sins. But Jesus here says that he has been given the unique power and authority to raise the spiritually dead. He has the power to give human beings new spiritual life. 
that we can now know and experience the Trinitarian love of God in a way that changes us forever. We can be forgiven of our sins. We can be reconciled to a holy God. That great chasm that we sang about today that exists between a holy God and us, a sinful people, Jesus can bridge that gap. That Jesus can can give life to the spiritually dead. That's what he says he can do. Verse 22, he goes on. For the Father judges no one. This is the, there's, there's, a, there's a movement in Christianity called seeker sensitivity. Seeker sensitivity is you kind of, you measure your crowd, you, you measure your people and you go, what do they want to hear about? Do they want to hear about parenting? Okay, let's do a parenting series. Do they want to hear about money? Let's do money. Do they want to hear about politics? Let's do politics. And you kind of measure your tone and your, your content by what the people want. This is the worst sermon in history by those standards. Just, he's like, what, are, what, are, what is everybody afraid of? Death, hell, judgment? Let's talk about that. What's gonna make him real mad? God's my dad. I'm healing people on the Sabbath. Jesus isn't giving people what they want. He's giving them what they need. Here we go. For the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son. Man. Jesus here is claiming to be the great judge of the earth. So much for that sweet little Jesus who is only gentle and lowly. This kind of claim rarely makes the Christian t-shirts or the coffee cups. It rarely makes that pretty little devotional book that you flower your end table with. The Father has given all judgment into my hands. In other words, I'm weighing every person's thoughts, actions, emotions, desires, behaviors, This is a stupendous claim. But this is important if you're going to know the real Jesus. Here's my, he he is a colossal Christ. He's a colossal Christ. Verse 23. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. In other words, every other religion is a lie. There is no other way to the Father. There is no other way to God. If you don't honor the Son, you can't honor the Father. Does that sound narrow? I know it's narrow. It is a narrow claim. But when you go through it, it opens up into eternity. So there's a narrow door. Jesus said that I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am, the, I am the, the sheep gate that you must enter. Nobody can get over the side. Nobody can come in any other way. There's no other way around Jesus. If you look at Jesus and you turn away from him, you're turning away from him towards damnation. Jesus is not just this meek and mild shepherd that comes and says, oh, shucks, guys, I really hope you like me. He stands up and says, if you don't honor the son, you won't honor the father. I'm the judge of the universe. The scales of justice are hanging in my hands. This is no meek and mild Christ in this moment. That means, listen, there are only two types of people on this world, on this earth. Those who say to God, my will be done. I'm not going to honor you. You honor me. And those who say to God, thy will be done. In other words, you either Worship Jesus. You honor the Son, or you're a traitor and usurper of King Jesus. There is no middle ground. Now look at the blessing for those who believe and worship this colossal Christ. Verse 24. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Again, eternal life isn't just life that goes on forever. We're about to see, here's the shocker, everyone lives forever somewhere, okay? Eternal life is a quality of life that begins now. It's a, I'm forgiven by God. I can now, I've been given the identity of a child of God. I'm in the family. I can now know God as my father. I can walk with him. I've got spiritual life and vitality in me that, that the fruit of the spirit is being developed, that the Holy Spirit is inside of me. And that life is going to go on into eternity and get better and better and better and better forever. He goes on. <clears throat> he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. When you put your faith in Christ, Christ is crucified in your place. Christ takes your judgment so you don't receive judgment. So you're passing from judgment. You're passing from death to life. So death is not a judgment anymore for the Christian. Death is just a doorway into our glorified body and life forever with Christ. He goes on, verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Here's what happens. Jesus Christ speaks through his Holy Spirit. He speaks to human beings here and now. He spoke to me when I was 17 years old. I was living a wild life. I lived for nothing but sports and girls. I was a sinner. I was broken. I was messed up. And he spoke to me and he saved me. And I heard his voice spiritually, not audibly. I didn't wake up, uh -huh, right? I didn't wake, no. He spoke to me and he called me out of spiritual death and he brought me into spiritual life. And now all of a sudden, I wanted to read the Bible. Now all of a sudden, I kind of kind of started to understand the Bible. Now all of a sudden, I didn't just want to be a business owner and a wrestling coach. I wanted to be a preacher. I wanted to be a pastor. That God changed my desires quickly, so much so, and I'm still in the same town, which I understand why a prophet is not ex expected in his own town. Anybody from high school, my, my best buddy, you know, they, he, they, everybody gets a joke out of it. Like, Justin Dean's a preacher? Justin Dean's a pastor? Well, I knew him in high school. No, no, no. You knew the old me in high school. You knew the dead me in high school. You don't know the new me. You don't know the me that's been raised out of that tomb and given new spiritual life. That, now here's the deal. That happens to every single Christian. The dead, the spiritually dead, hear the voice of Jesus, usually through the word, through the preaching, and they're given life and they come to new faith and you're giving a new identity. You're given, you become a new person, spiritually new. Let's keep going. Verse 26, for the father, as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Now this son of man term that might throw you for a loop, that's actually an Old Testament reference. It's in Daniel. It talks about the prophetic one that's going to come. He's going to become like, like one of the son of man. It's actually Jesus' favorite term for himself. And he's basically saying, the man is here. That's how we would say it. When the man comes around, who's the man? I'm the son of man. It's an actual term for the Christ. Jesus says, that's me. And he's given me the authority to execute judge, judgment. And he says this, do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Here's what I mean. Everybody is going to live forever somewhere and everyone's going to get a new body after death. Christians are going to get a new body that's going to live forever with God on the new heavens and the new earth and unbelievers are going to get a new body that's going to be sent to hell and it's going to be experience absence of God, misery, for the rest of their existence. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. Here we get a picture of this day. Verse 11. <clears throat> then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Look at this. 
Here is this colossal Christ. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Here's what you need to see. This is some kind of iridescent, superior glory that drives, it's like the sun, right? I'm on the beach, I'm staring, I'm trying to do my best. I got my sunglasses on and I'm trying to stare at the sun while it's setting and it seems like everything is running, everything is fleeing from its presence because it's so bright, it's so glorious, nothing can stand next to it, nothing can compare to it. Well, Jesus on his throne, will, the sun itself will bow its head in glory to Jesus on his throne. Nothing can stand. It's a far superior glory than anything. Maybe it was the glory that our eyeballs were built for. That's what it's going to look like on his throne. And I saw the dead, great and small. What does that mean? The poorest person in India, the richest billionaire on earth, this is where they'll stand together on level ground. Great and small. Doesn't matter how many praises the, sing, the, the, the world has sung, you will stand before this great white throne and you will either be in worship or in absolute terror. Standing before the throne and the books were opened. What's he doing? What's he reading? And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Every single thing done against the glory of God that mars his beauty, mars his truth, mars his holiness, every lie, the book is open. Probably read in HD clarity. Maybe. You can throw a little video up on the screen for us. I didn't. Oh yeah, I did. Then another book was opened which is the book of life. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Now here is the good news for those of us who are in Christ. Next chapter, chapter 6 of, gospel, of the Gospel of John, he talks about anybody who's in Christ, anybody who's forgiven by God does the works of God. And they say, well, what are the works of God? What must we do is what people are saying. And he says this, believe on the Son whom the Father has sent. So there's two books. One book is full of everything wrong you have ever done and you will be judged for it unless your name is written in the second book, the book of life. And the only way to get into that book isn't through your own good works. It's through the works of Christ on your behalf. And you must put your faith, your trust, your love, your devotion, your everything onto him. And that's what gets your book in the, in the book of life. Verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus, Justin, do you think that's, do you think that's a metaphor? If it is, it's a metaphor for something much worse. It's a picture of hell. It's a picture of human beings were made for love, were made for connection, were made for goodness, truth, and beauty. And yet when you reject the source of it and his son, there's nothing left for you but the opposite of those things, the absence of those things. That's what hell is. It's the absence of beauty. It's the absence of goodness. It's the absence of truth. In a sense, it's the absence of God. Yeah. 
Here's the idea. Every single human being is an eternal soul with a body. And one day, every single one of us will die. And when we die, those who have put their faith and worship onto Jesus Christ will go to heaven, and those who have not will go to hell. And then heaven and hell are both very real places. But then when the Father decides the time and the hour, Jesus Christ will leave heaven once again and come back to this earth to gather his bride, that is all of the Christians, and to raise up the dead of all those Christians and renew and restore their old bodies into new creation bodies like Jesus got in his resurrection. Then we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we will hear our, maybe we'll hear our bad works read, but then he'll open up the other book and he'll read our name in the Lamb's book of life and we will hear, well done, my good and faithful servants. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Jesus calls this the resurrection of life. But here's what many people don't realize the traitors to King Jesus will be resurrected too. Jesus calls this the resurrection of judgment. They will come back to life to never die again as well, except they won't spend eternity with us on a totally renewed and restored earth with God dwelling together with us and with God. They will spend eternity in hell, the lake of fire. Listen, for the Christian, this life, is the closest thing to hell we will ever experience. For the traitor, this life is the closest thing to heaven you will ever experience. This kind of message just doesn't go over in our day and age. I've been called an old school preacher. I've been called worse, but I don't mind that one. <clears throat> How often does anyone talk about hell? Well, it shouldn't surprise you that it didn't go over in Jesus' day as well. This is why they kill him. He's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be the judge of the earth. He's claiming to have the power to give life. And yet when they come to get them, get him. Listen to this. Here's what I want you to see. I hope I've lifted your gaze up and you, you've perceived this colossal Christ, this Christ that's beyond our imagination. He holds the, the keys of life and death in his hands. But here's the reality. When these little punks, these Jewish leaders, these nobodies and no ones, when they come to get them, Jesus doesn't use this power to save himself. He says he could have called 10,000 upon 10,000 angels to come at his side. He could have shot lightning bolts out of his eyeballs and killed them all. He could have went, oh, you want me? Force field, Psh, like just let him do that for a while, right? He could have done it, but what does he do? What does he do? Here's the economic trinity. Jesus, in all eternity past, knew what he wanted to do, knew what he was going to do. The only way mankind could be saved is if God became a man and took the punishment that men and women deserve. And so Jesus said, I'm going to become a man. I'm going to be incarnated in flesh. I'm going to come and live the perfect life. I'm going to come and die for them. I'm going to come and show them how much God loves them. And you can be obsessed with judgment. You can be obsessed with hell, but you should be obsessed with this type of love. The one who demands honor was dishonored in our place. The one who is life himself died. Why did he do this? So that you could live. So that you could have spiritual life. So that you could have heaven. So that you could have eternal life. Jesus was treated like a traitor so that we could be called sons and daughters of God. Jesus died so that we could live. Jesus was cursed so that we could be blessed. Remember in our text that Jesus said, he alone has the power to give life to whomever he wills. The question is, do you want to live? Do you want eternal life? Do you want to know God? Do you want to be forgiven? Do you want to have a new reality like this? You won't have death and hell and judgment hanging over your head. If you want it, put your faith in Jesus. And the beautiful thing is, Charles Spurgeon has this beautiful illustration. He, he says, 
we, we choose God, we choose Jesus, we believe in Jesus, and we kind of walk through the gates of heaven, and then we look back and we say, and it says, before the foundations of the world, I knew you. Like, who, does God choose us first, or do we, you know, no, God chooses us first, but we don't really recognize that until we've chosen him, and then we realize, oh, Jesus chose me. Jesus willed that I should live. Jesus gave me that Bible. Jesus gave me that roommate. Jesus gave me that neighbor. Jesus gave me that family. Jesus put me here on this earth to hear the gospel. Jesus chose me. He's already willed for you to believe in him. Well, I'm just out of time. Not really out of sermon. I'm just out of time. So let me pray for us. Jesus, we want to give you the honor and the glory that you deserve. You are a colossal Christ. I pray that our imagination was captured by your magnificence, by your beauty, by your glory. Oh, that you should come and die for us. And now, Jesus, you colossal Christ, you meet us here by your spirit in this meal and you get to feed us. And so we come humbly. We want to confess our sins. We want to put our faith in you. We want to eat rightly and not dishonorably. So would you help us receive this meal rightly with humble hearts, thankful for the work that you've done. And would you do in us what we don't even know you need to do? Would you heal us? Would you minister to us? Would you change us? Would you feed us through your body and your blood? We pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen and amen.